Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we wanna say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Jeff S., Jackie A., Brian O., and Craig S. On the program today is a returning guest, Mr. Daniel Earl is back with us. Daniel is the president and CEO of Solaris Resources, a copper and gold-focused project developer and exploration company that is advancing the Warenza project in Ecuador towards development. Solaris Resources also has a number of pipeline projects as well throughout the Americas. Solaris Resources is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol SLS, as well as on the US OTC markets under the symbol SLSSF. Daniel, it's great to have you back on the program. Well, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Good to chat with you and uh, check in on Solaris Resources. Well, why don't we get right to some recent news to kick this off? That Chinese-based Zijin Mining, a, a global conglomerate a mining house, is making an equity investment of about 130 million Canadian into the company. Talk about those details, the importance, and also the confirmation that this transaction brings the company. Yeah, it's my pleasure. We're very excited to have them on board. This is arguably, you could say, that this is the most successful major mining company in the kind of the recent history, last few decades of the mining industry. I mean, they, they literally started out with a single mine in China, it's a Chinese company, um, in the 90s. And then they've grown it into a $40 billion enterprise with very aggressive growth targets out into the future. And, and they've done this all through M&A, identifying assets that are quality assets to develop, and then acquiring them, and then building those assets to build up their portfolio production. I can back up a little bit and provide some context of the kind of the full picture of the financing that we put in place for this company. I, I think it's probably helpful to do that because we actually announced a financing in December and this was an $80 million US financing. We've now drawn about half of that financing. So about 10 million of equity and 30 million of uh, the offtake uh, related uh, debt of that $80 million financing. So this was an offtake financing package. That deal basically provided the baseline of funding for the programs that we had in 2024 and 2025. Essentially all the capital that we needed to deliver the de-risking for this, this incredible project that we have at Rinsa in Ecuador. Okay, and so with that funding, we're already started on drilling again. We've got one rig. We're going to be at uh, six rigs by the end of the next month. And we'll just keep on drilling throughout the year, but we're going to have a resource update in Q2, and that'll deliver some significant growth, but we'll just keep drilling right to the end of the year. Um, so resource update in Q2, environmental impact assessment uh, to permit the mine, that'll go in in the second half of the year. And then in 2025, we'll follow up with another resource update. This will be more focused on the kind of the infill drilling and then a pre-feasibility study. And then from there, an exploitation agreement to build the mine. This is an agreement with the government and the completion of the permitting process in 2025. So that's kind of the baseline program that we had for de-risking this asset. And that's fully funded uh, with the offtake financing package that we announced in December. Okay. And, and if you look at the precedent, you know, kind of transactions that are available, if you have a de-risked asset, we're trading at something like 0.2 times NAV, where these assets are trading hands at 0.8 times NAV. So that's something like a four times re-rig potential right there. Um, now on the Zijin transaction, which is extremely exciting, you know, for some of the reasons that you mentioned, this is basically the funding that we really need to take things to another level. So, so basically that program that I described to you to just take it up to an entirely different level, get way more aggressive in terms of the drilling to deliver, you know, much more significant growth, a larger project, a more valuable project, and then investments to you know, to, to further de-risk the project. So it can really be fast-tracked uh, into the full-scale construction and eventually production. And these are all things that I think are going to add a lot of value. If you look at Zijin, just to provide a few a few further thoughts on, on Zijin for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with them, this is a company, as I said, who's very much focused on 
acquiring assets, quality assets, and then building those assets. This is not like a Canadian major who's running an equity portfolio alongside their mining business, where you may see, you know, half a dozen equity transactions of kind of small, maybe meaningless kind of scale in the context of the overall portfolio. For Zijin, you know, the only other equity deal that they've done in their entire history that was unattached to an asset level deal came a decade ago into Predium Resources. And, and you'll recall Predium Resources, a, a gold explorer turned developer turned mining company in British Columbia. And they eventually, as we understand it, tried to acquire that company. And when they were unsuccessful, sold their position. It, it went on to be acquired by Newcrest at something like three times the value that Zijin came in at. And then every other transaction that they've done has either been an outright acquisition or a deal at the asset level that gets them to a control position or a near control position. And, and the highlight within their history would be the transformational investment that they made in Ivanhoe Mines. And Ivanhoe Mines, you know, your firm has done an incredible, I know you guys were early on the story and have done a great job uh, covering the value creation that's occurred there. It's been, it's been one of the great stories in the mining sector. Um, but if you go back to their history, they IPO'd at 475 back in 2012, and the stock had declined almost 90% uh, to well below a dollar on, on a whole variety of things. There was excess liquidity, so selling into the market, political risk, you know, financing pressure. It was a bear market, of course. Um, and Zijin came in, they, they made the call on the asset that it had tier one potential. They stepped in, they bought 10% of the equity and then 49% of the asset. And that basically provided Ivanhoe all the capital that they needed to execute on, you know, their vision, the fullest potential of the asset. And they went on to create, you know, something like $30 billion of value. That is one of the most successful investments that you're going to see in the mining history. That was transformational investment uh, from Zijin. You know, so we have a very different project, uh, obviously in a different market and all the rest of it. But we believe that this Zijin financing for us can be absolutely transformational in the same way. And we're expecting that transaction to close in Q2. And once we do, you're going to see this big step up in terms of the level of activity on the project. So, you know, going from six rigs to at least 10 rigs. Uh, over the same time frame, and then really a step up in everything else that we do. Uh, the mine exploration, the regional exploration, we'll add a district exploration program, infrastructure investments, um, fast tracking the project, and a whole bunch of other things. So for all of those reasons, we think that this is just absolutely transformational for us and really excited to be able to bring this to our shareholders. Daniel, thank you for all that. That was uh, an education in itself, really. And just for the audience, uh, Daniel is very astute here on all the happenings in this sector, copper, gold, what have you, uh, very astute with what's happening, knows the history of these companies, knows the transactions, knows the players, knows the financiers. Good job on covering that off. And thank you for the reminder. I, Ivanhoe's been sitting in the portfolio these years, and it's really turned out to be an incredible investment going back to what you said. I remember the days Ivanhoe was sub 90 cents, quite an impressive run and just a tremendous performance by Robert Marna and the team. So. And I think, once again, for Solaris, this provides notable confirmation to the investment community that uh, this is a notable asset and, and people's eyes are on it for sure. And folks' eyes are also in Ecuador right now with the performance that Ecuador's had in the mining sector over the last few years. You know, Fruta del Norte is certainly one that's stood out in my mind. Mirador's out there. There's a few other development projects, another project, El Domo just got uh, its go ahead. So there are certainly some things happening here. So I appreciate that. Why don't we talk briefly before we go back into Solaris here? I'd like to know from you how you are seeing this junior copper and gold sector for a moment in 2024. Any thoughts for the audience as far as how you see sentiment here, you know, the current prices and any other thoughts on the market at this point? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say, you know, you've got to distinguish between the equities and then the metals. I think the metal outlook um, is is certainly very promising, even if the bull market is, um, I, I think, still in front of us in, in each of those commodities. Uh, but the equities are, are quite depressed for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, if, if you talk about copper specifically, you know, I, I always try and frame it for people in terms of the two key drivers, which are, you know, sentiment and then the fundamentals themselves. And the sentiment is is pretty dire for, for most metals. 
This just reflects basically the, the view on global growth, which is pretty weak. Uh, you see that in the equities especially. You know, if you look at spec positioning for copper, you, you see that the market is neither short uh, nor long in spite of what I think is a very bullish fundamental setup. So this is looking forward. And, and those fundamentals are, you know, kind of already tight. So we're in a position of low inventories and then uh, tightening out into the future. And, and so whatever your forecast in terms of economic growth, I think you have to acknowledge that we're going to be in a deficit this year. And where you put the point where the market really starts to get tight and then put upward pressure on prices, you know, that's where you've got some room uh, to kind of uh, um, to play with, depending on what your economic view is. But this is coming from the supply side. So, you know, if you think about some of the announcement that we've seen on the supply side, like Cobra Panama being shut down, you know, that's 380,000 tons out of the market. Uh, the shortfalls from Anglo total 230,000 tons. You know, there's another 100,000 tons out of Rio Tinto. Um, you know, and as the guidance starts to roll through, I think that you're going to see that the shortfalls actually grow um, rather than uh, get smaller. And, and so this is... This is a backdrop where you're going to have a supply crunch. And then where you put that, I would say in the back half of the year, but where you put that depends on your economic view. And um, so that's kind of the fundamentals. Now, on the spec side of it, what you have to understand is that specs will get out in front of the fundamentals. You know, so if sentiment improves, you'll see the specs will kind of immediately add length. If nothing changes in terms of the global economic outlook, then in front of those fundamentals truly getting to the squeeze point, you're going to see the specs come in. And that's that's like exactly what we saw coming out of the pandemic. You know, so this is the worst possible economic backdrop where you've got, you know, manufacturing coming almost to a standstill and the market building, you know, almost a, a half a million ton primary surplus um, in the heart of the kind of the pandemic in Q2 and then Q3 of 2020. But the copper price went higher and it went higher because the specs uh, swamped and overcame that loosening of the market. You know, so specs came in and added over a million and a half tons of length and the copper price went something like 30% higher. So just, just bear in mind uh, that the specs can overcome what's happening in the fundamental market. And it doesn't require a lot of capital. You know, $2 billion of capital in copper has the same impact as 20 to $30 billion of capital in the oil market in terms of the impact that it has relative to the, you know, the fundamental uh, fundamentals in the market. Okay, so so just imagine, you know, if we're further we're further kind of advanced in terms of the uh, the secular bull market theme in copper, which we talked about before, and this becomes a mainstream investing trend. How much capital is going to go towards uh, the futures market in copper? Like, if two billion dollars has a big impact, what would twenty billion dollars do? And what would forty billion dollars do? That's what we need to be thinking about in copper. And I think there are parallels to other parts of the market where you can see this. You know more acutely like uranium and and this is another commodity that you know your firm has been right on top of you know you've been early on the uranium call all of your listeners have been enriched by that bot leadership in that space this is kind of what we see potential for in, in terms of uh, copper and then there's a longer term story i don't want to get too too long you know kind of beyond the scope of what you're asking about but there's a longer term story to talk about as well which i think locks in this fundamentally bullish, the secular bull story uh, for copper, which is going to be incredibly powerful. Appreciate your comments here. And I think one of the things we've noticed too, and it, it definitely is not coming from your side of things, but there's a lot of folks in this sector, in the junior sector, smaller companies than what Solaris is. They're in the copper sector, but they don't fully understand the copper sector. I can certainly say without a doubt, you understand the copper sector quite well. And I think you guys are positioning properly for that. And also that structural deficits really help put together the picture for investors in the sector. Yeah. And, and the key point is really to understand that it's locked in. It, it's absolutely locked in because of the long lead cycle time. And then because of what's happened on the CapEx side, you know, we could talk about uranium and other commodities as well, where you see those same sorts of things developing, but in copper, it's really clear cut, you know, where you've got CapEx for, for, for projects in Chile, which is the world's number one producer you know, 28% of the market, the CapEx to bring on a new ton of copper production is over $30,000 per ton. You know, CapEx in Peru, which would be the world's number two producer, is $25,000 a ton. You know, if that's what it's costing you to bring on a new ton of copper production, you need five or $6 copper minimum 
in your long-term forecast to be able to justify bringing on new new greenfield capacity, which is which is the big delta in terms of um, addressing these these uh, you know uh, kind of shortfalls that are growing out towards the end of the decade and beyond. You know you need greenfield and you just can't do it. You can't justify it to investors. You can't justify it to your board um, with these kinds of prices. Long-term consensus pricing is at 375. The copper industry cannot respond in any meaningful way at 375 copper. It's the same setup that you had in uranium. You know, when you had uranium prices at $40 a pound, it, 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 you, you were guaranteeing that you were going to have a bull market. And that's what we have in front of us in, in copper. It's coming. I fully agree to what you're saying here. And also just layer on all these extra layers of red tape. It's so difficult to get a project past Absolutely. social acceptance, government approvals, environmental approvals. Now we have to add the NGOs to this list, <laughs> NGO approvals. Let's not mention the unions and everything else. We can talk about Panama and Ecuador and all that other good stuff in that conversation, but I'll stay on track here and um, to another progress on the corporate side, which I think is useful for getting this narrative out to the broader market and adding liquidity. And that is your guys's announced application to go on the NYSE Amex. Can you just talk a little bit about that process and how that's going? Yeah, absolutely. We, we think it's really important. We've, we've got a job to do now to rebuild the share structure. So, so we had the parent company, uh, this portfolio copper assets came out of a gold company and that gold company, they ran into difficulty where they were building a whole series of mines at the same time as the gold price was falling. And there were some operational issues to boot. And so they had to sell down that position. They were forced to do it. And that was together with the warrants that we had being exercised at the same time. And, th and this was on the backdrop of a bear market. Uh, that was about $250 million of stock that, that had to be placed in the market. And so that's the kind of the delta in terms of the hole in the market that I want to go in and find new shareholders to be able to uh, kind of consolidate the share structure. And I think a, a, key, a key part, the key part of the strategy for doing that is, is going to be expanding, you know, um, into the U.S. market with the NYSE American listing. And that'll open up a whole uh, new segment of the market for those kind of U.S. domestic mandate funds, uh, for the family offices, uh, for retail investors who can be very, very sizable. We, we've had investors, you know, come to us looking to purchase large positions in the market, but just unable to do it um, either on the OTC and then lacking access through their brokers uh, to trade stocks on the TSX. So there's a very large opportunity there. I know that the, the demand is there because we've heard it ourselves. And that's what we're looking to address uh, with the NYSE American listing. And so that'll fall, you know, towards the end of Q1 or into Q2 is when we'll have a company up and trading on the NYSE American. And that'll be a key catalyst for us Al alongside, you know, a whole series of other catalysts. This is going to be a really exciting year for Solaris. And we're funded, we're more than funded to be able to deliver on all the catalysts and then some. Appreciate that. And definitely, I think the timing's just about right here. And our good friends over at Equinox have been busy and they've had challenges along the way. And we've seen the leverage cut both ways, as you well know, and looks like they're getting successful with some of the new operations with Greenstone very close Absolutely. here as well. And I'm excited exciting. to see that come on. So on the capital structure, and then I want to get back to the drilling program, just uh, give us an update on the capital structure here, Daniel, just pro forma what's happened with Zygene. And then also uh, Orion Mine Finance has come in from the December package. Just talk about pro forma shares outstanding, you know, cash on hand. I think we see that this is going to last quite a while. And then also major yeah. shareholders on the roster. So we've only taken down half of the offtake financing package, right? So we've taken down 40 million of that. So we've got about $45 million or so on the balance sheet. These are all U.S. figures, about $45 million on the balance sheet. And then obviously there's some flexibility because we're expecting to close the Zijin transaction, which will add another $100 million uh, in the second quarter. Okay, so think of that as being sort of $145 million. And then that provides the funding for 24, 25, 26, and basically everything that we can think of that we need to do uh, with the capital position at the end of that. Um, so we're very, very well funded um, with that funding, okay? And in terms of the share structure, if you bring in Zijin, about a 15% shareholder on a fully diluted basis, our executive chairman would be about 32%, and then the rest of the management team would be another about 5%. So you got about 37% in management. Then you've got, in our key 
uh, large institutional shareholder in BlackRock, you've got about another 7%, and then the Lundines would be kind of a few percent. So the float outside of that, you're, you're sitting at a little over a third of the, of the share structure. And, it, and it's that float that I'm targeting with the NYSE American listing to place a good chunk of that into the U.S. market. And we've had a great deal of interest coming off the back of the Zijin financing. We had a great deal of interest, as you'd imagine. This is the highest profile, the most reputable, the most successful Chinese mining company. We had a whole outpouring of interest from the Chinese market, from companies across the space. So this would be equipment manufacturers, automotive companies, battery companies, and so on, reaching out to see if there were other investment opportunities. Really for us, the key is the market. We don't need any additional capital. Okay, so the structure that you see is, is, is basically the structure that we're going with. Um, and really the job to do is to just bring as much investment as we can directly into the market where it's going to benefit our shareholders. So that's the strategy and that's the focus for me over the next couple of years. It's a good problem to have, certainly, where you guys are in this position and what you've been able to attract on capital and the fact that you don't have to go back and talk to the market anytime soon, which is very positive. How about uh, back to drilling program? You started to cover off that and lots of things planned here, but I want to have you focus a little bit on, we know that on the back end of this program, which is going to ramp up to 10 rigs or, or whatever the number is going to finally be, the infill is coming at the back end of this. Talk about how you guys are looking at in terms of you know some of the targets you want to follow up on and some of that additional testing to really expand and really show the more potential coming out of this project. Can you just talk about maybe some of those areas, some of the target selection, Daniel, if you will, and what you guys at the end of this in say early 25, what you will expect to have accomplished at that time? Absolutely. And and so we focus obviously on the number of rigs because that's what investors understand. But 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 alongside that there's been some major productivity improvements as well. So um, so it's not just the number of rigs in terms of the amount of meterage and the number of holes that you get done. It's also that productivity, which is really critically important. And that helps bring down costs as well. And so this has been something that we've been working on for a long time. We've gone from, to give you an idea of the, uh, the improvements we've made, we've gone from something like when we started 30 meters of drilling per shift, you know, and then two shifts per day, to uh, by the end of the last program, we were up around 50 meters per shift. And then in this program, with some of the logistical improvements that we're making, we're hoping to be around 65 meters per shift. And, and this is pretty impressive for the type of drilling that we're doing. I was having a conversation at a conference recently with, with one of my colleagues at another company, and, um, and his productivity was down around uh, 17 meters per shift. So it's, it's very impressive in terms of what we've been able to do, working with our community partners and putting in place all the infrastructure to support a really efficient drilling program on top of a large-scale drilling program. So just as an aside, so we've started drilling again. Uh, one rig, we'll be at six rigs by the end of February. And then as the Zijin transaction closes in Q2, we'll go to at least 10 rigs. And it may be more than that. It depends on how much capacity we have downstream. So, um, you know, because we start with the productivity improvements, we start running out of capacity to actually cut the core and log the core and prepare the samples and then send them off for assay. So I just say, I say at least 10 rigs, you know, it may be more than that. We'll see. Um, and, and basically what we're doing, so we're going to be drilling for the resource. The resource update will be in, in towards the end of Q2, and this will deliver significant growth. Think of, you know, go back to the first resource that we published. That was in Q2 of 22, and that represented about 18 months of drilling up to the end of 21. And so we published a resource that was primarily our central deposit. What we've done since then is basically double the drilling database. And we're going from the central deposit to add the east deposit and then the southeast deposit. And all of those deposits overlap. So you're getting significant growth, but you're also getting the synergies of bringing these pits into the same pit shell and reducing the, uh, the waste stripping. Okay, and that still leaves our west deposit, our south deposit, and then our newest discovery at Patrimonio. And we're just gonna keep on drilling right the way through that resource and then on into the next resource. And so there's those additional deposits, and then there's exploration even beyond that in terms of some of the, uh, the near mine targets, which could potentially form part of the cluster. You know, when we started, we had a lone porphyry deposit. We now have six deposits, and we're calling this a cluster of porphyry deposits. That doesn't mean that's the end of it. In fact, in fact, the opposite. I'd be surprised if we weren't able to add 
to the total number of discoveries that we have on this property. We've got targets like Trinche, um, Mateo, Medio Camino, uh, Kaya, and other targets on the existing package of claims. And then we've got a large amount of data available to us uh, for the district beyond that. And we're working with our government partners to try and access some of those district opportunities. So there's a lot of potential uh, here. And of course, we're going to be funded to take advantage of all of this. So that's really what we're trying to do in terms of the exploration program. Do you have a rough idea just because there's so there's a lot you can do here. Can you give us just a flavor as to so infill on the backside, obviously, for the economic studies and proving that piece, but lifting the categories and confidence up any rough idea as to what you would expect on CapEx for specifically exploration program? Or is there anything you can give us as far as flavor on that? The budget right now is based on the financing that we've closed. Okay, so that's the offtake financing package. So that's an $80 million financing package. And that basically covers the baseline budget for 24 and 25. And then when the Zijin transaction closes, we'll come out with detailed plans uh, for investors, talking about basically a much larger program in kind of all areas. And so the expiration spending will go up considerably. But if you look at the drilling budget right now, we've got about 50 kilometers of drill planned for the year. And then that number is going to go significantly higher. Uh, so that should give you an idea. And, and if you want the reference in terms of what it takes to put out a resource, the original resource that we had, you know, the one that we published in Q2 of 22, that contains 65 kilometers of drilling. So we're going to add 50, well, we've already nearly doubled the drilling database. We're going to add another 50 kilometers of drilling, and then that number will go higher. So this is really a lot of drilling in terms of what we're talking about here. That puts it right into context for us. Thank you for that. How about just overall on progression of the economic studies? Talked a little bit about that here. So, you know, pre-feasibility is the next thing on deck. Um, obviously, we've got resource delineation and category confidence improvement as well. But what do you expect roughly on timing for that PFS? And then from there, did you guys plan to immediately progress to a feasibility study at that point and continue the work that needs to go into that. And then also, I know it's a little bit early here and I know we have lots more exploration to do, but can you also talk just a little bit about how you see this production profile of this project starting to shape up? We hired a chief operating officer. This is something that we announced in December by the name of Javier Toro. And Javier Toro came to us from HUD Bay Minerals. And whatever you think of, um, of HUD Bay, what I can say is that they have a very deep bench in terms of the technical talent there. They are absolute leaders in terms of driving efficiencies out of mineral projects. Uh, going all the way, and Javier was responsible for basically copper assets in the Americas and large-scale copper assets within that portfolio. And going all the way from you know resource stage, PA, PFS, FS, and then into construction and then operating assets, you know, optimizations and expansions. And you see all of that represented in his work. And, um, and they've done a phenomenal job. So when you benchmark some of their assets like Constancia, when you're looking at the actual cost per ton and the capex per unit of production that they've delivered, those are, are right down around the industry uh, kind of low points in terms of the cost that they've been able to deliver. And so that speaks to that expertise that they have organizationally. And so it was a major coup for us to be able to recruit uh, a true expert in copper projects in the Americas, large-scale copper projects uh, from HUD Bay. Uh, and we were able to do that and beat out a, another copper company, a mid-tier copper company that was competing for his attention. And, and so Javier, you know, his role obviously is to come in as chief operating officer and take full responsibility uh, for the project culminating in the pre-feasibility study that will be delivered in 2025. And we've got a good baseline of work already, um, but it's basically evolving those programs and expanding those programs and then delivering the pre-feasibility study. So we'll have the resource update in towards the end of Q2 and then another resource update that will go in the pre-feasibility study in 2025. And it shouldn't surprise anyone to hear that there's going to be a large-scale copper project. The best comparable for the RINSA project is the large-scale copper mine that you have just down the highway from us. And so this is the Mirador mine. And, and this really illustrates what the opportunity is in Ecuador. You know, we're not in Ecuador because it's a beautiful country. We're there because it has great assets. 
we're there because you can permit the mines and we're there because you can build the mines at industry low costs and then operate them at low cost to boot. So it's just a great jurisdiction in terms of the assets that are available. And Mir Mirador really illustrates what the opportunity is with Warinza because it's basically a more advanced asset. You know, this is a copper deposit, open pit copper deposit, roughly same sort of scale and grade as our as our Warinza central deposit. You know, it was permitted in 12 months. It was built on budget for $1.4 billion. You know, it came in and actually operated way above its design rates. Okay, and then they took the cash flows. This is operating at the lowest, even during the ramp up phase, was operating in the lowest quartile of the cost curve. So all that free cash flow that they were generating, they're reinvesting in an expansion, doubling the capacity of the asset. And, and this is just a major success story for Chinese overseas mining development, which has a bit of a, a difficult history in, in some jurisdictions, but a shining success story to point to in Ecuador. When you look at that project in terms of where the rubber meets the road for the copper industry, when you're assessing, you know, kind of opportunities in the inventory and capital allocation and so on, the really key metric, which I think is going to define um, the kind of the next cycle in terms of separating the winners from the losers is, is, is the capital intensity. And so that Mirador copper project to get to global scale production, 250,000 tons a year of copper, it's coming in around $2.8 billion, which translates into $11,000 a ton. You know, even if you inflate that to $15,000 a ton, you've still got a project that's viable at 325 copper, let alone 350 or 375. And what you're competing against is, again, it, it, it's Peru. Peru's at $25,000 a ton, okay? And then Chile, which between the two of them represent 40% of global copper production, is coming in above $30,000 a ton. So anywhere from two to three and a half times more expensive in the competing jurisdictions. And so you should absolutely, when you think about what, what's coming for Rinsa, you should be looking at Mirador and you should be expecting that we're going to deliver because we have the same natural advantage, the same advantages in Ecuador in terms of it being a U.S. dollar economy, in terms of it having excellent infrastructure, the highway network, the power grid, which is hydroelectric power, low elevation, low cost labor, freely available fresh water. These are all factors that come together to deliver these outstanding results in economic studies and more importantly, in the actual results from operations. Very good points on the cost profiles here. And Ecuador gets a lot of respect, at least from this office, with respect to how they've structured the economy. Oil prices, obviously, there are among the best in Central and South America, a very good setup. One other thing that came to mind as you were talking there is in some places and with certain projects, we're seeing these juniors having to carry these projects further along the development curve. You know, not just PEA anymore, not just PFS, you know, DFS, we wanna start seeing social acceptance come in here, permitting success and certainty, if you will. And we're seeing that play out in some places. And I think you'll have an interesting opinion here. Do you think that's something that's happening in the sector completely across the junior sector? That people are waiting, that acquirers are waiting for confirmation more confirmation before they make that move? Or do you think it depends on the asset and the jurisdiction? It depends really also on the acquirer. Like if you think of the two broad categories, you know, in the profile of those acquirers, like Western companies versus Chinese companies, the Western companies are constrained by the, by, by the fundamental disconnect that I described to you between long-term copper pricing, which consensus right now is about 375. And then where the capital costs are to construct these assets that are tier one assets in terms of their scale, you know, the, the numbers, the numbers just don't, don't add up, which is why you're not seeing a wave of M&A uh, from Western companies. Okay. In, in terms of, you know, the traditional hunting grounds for this type of project, Ecuador is a bit of an exception. Ecuador is a bit of an exception because of the low cost structure that we talked about in terms of the Chinese companies. And this is really where you're seeing the action in the M&A space. So, you know, it's, it's just in the last couple of weeks, we saw a Chinese company come in and pay over $850 million for Lubombe. This is a Zambian development asset. Um, you saw another transaction, you know, recently for another asset in Zambia called Mopane. And, th and this was actually acquired by a sovereign wealth fund out of the UAE, which, you know, is kind of a non-traditional buyer. It, it tells you how widespread uh, the interest in, is in acquiring uh, copper assets. Uh, for, for this secular bull market that's in front of us. When you've got a non-traditional buyer like that coming in and spending over a billion dollars 
to acquire again a pretty mediocre, like relatively small scale uh, copper development asset. The rest of the bidders for Mopani were all Chinese, by the way. Um, and then Comacau, uh, just before that, you know, this was announced in November, I believe, late, late November, I believe, bought by a Chinese company again for nearly $2 billion. Okay, and this is a small scale producer with, you can think of it as basically being a development asset. It is a small scale producer, but it's got, you know, all of the value is in the expansion there. So, so this is really where the action is. It's with Chinese bidders, and they're looking to deliver on their strategic goals, which are to add the copper production that they need for the build out in the copper space that they're trying to achieve at the, in terms of one of their national strategic goals. And, and I think that's where you really need to be focusing on if you're, you know, if you're a company like Solaris, where you've got a tier one asset uh, in a jurisdiction that is greenlit, not, not just open to Chinese in a way that, you know, Canada is no longer open, Australia is no longer open, the United States is no longer open. So not just open to the Chinese, but greenlit for the Chinese because it's, it's an example, uh, a shining example of success for Chinese overseas mining development. You know, that's where you really need to focus. Okay. Yeah, very good insights. And I think at the end of this, irrespective of whatever your energy policies are, and of course, we could have a whole different podcast just to discuss energy and why copper is so important here. The bottom line of it is, is all roads lead to copper. And at least in this office's opinion, all roads lead to commercial nuclear power as well. Either way, whatever flavor of energy you want, copper is absolutely the backbone of this. And obviously the Chinese have to have their stakes and flags planted around the world with some of these assets. And of course, as you know, the West has struggled to keep up really asleep at the wheel in some particular cases. I, I won't pick on Canada there, but certainly the U.S. can get picked on. Just back to Ecuador at the national level here, Daniel. Talk about uh, conditions in Ecuador today, you know, 2024, how you're seeing things. And then, of course, the relationship Solaris has with the government, appetite in the country for natural resource development, as you know, we're seeing a positive appetite show up here. And then also the work you're doing on the community front to get that very important social license for the project. Ecuador is kind of a noisy jurisdiction. You see a lot of headlines in terms of the security situation in the country, in terms of the economic situation, you know, the debt crisis facing the country and so on. But but this is the backdrop that the mining industry really thrives in, you know, and, and in respect to the security issues, these are these are concentrated along the northern border with Colombia and then along the Pacific coast. And the mines are located on the opposite corner of the country, like in the in the very southeast of the country. The nearest cities to us, going back to kind of the middle of the country, would be uh, cities like Cuenca or Loja, uh, where you've got crime rates that are below those of the United States. And so, you know, the, the mines in the southeast of the country are even further removed from what's happening along the coast. So we haven't seen any impact. None of the mines have seen any impact by any of the, uh, the turmoil in terms of the security situation in the country. Mines are really thriving. I mean, you're only 10 years into the opening of the mining sector. So kind of the the short mining uh, history of mining in Ecuador. And the mines are absolutely thriving. You know, you mentioned Lundin Gold. This is another asset like Mirador, permitted in 12 months, built on schedule, on budget. You know, 2024 production, you're talking tier one levels, you know, up to 500,000 ounces. AISC in the lowest quartile of its cost curve. Beat guidance in 2023, 2022, and 2021. 2020 obviously was a write-off with, with, with COVID. Um, but this is this is an example of what's possible in Ecuador because you've got great assets, you've got a US dollar economy, you've got great infrastructure, you've got basically no inflation. And that's a company, in spite of you know the kind of the headlines that you see in Ecuador, that's getting rewarded by its shareholders. They're trading at a premium valuation. They trade above Barrick and Newmont in terms of their multiples because the asset has been so successful in Ecuador. And then Mirador, obviously it's owned by the Chinese, so we don't see public market visibility in terms of multiples and so on, but but they're absolutely killing it. It's an even bigger success story uh, in terms of the magnitude of it than Fruta del Norte is to Lundin. And so, you know, so when you look at Ecuador, this is a great jurisdiction. This is an opportune time to be in Ecuador. You know, we've had 10 years of pro mining policy in the country from Korea in 2014, you know, beginning with him, 
to his successor, Moreno, then de Lasso, and now to President Nabola, who was just elected in, in October. I went down to meet with him in New York in November, and then he was inaugurated in December. If you go to our presentation, you can see a picture of me with Naboa, and he's going to be very good for mining. You know, the other picture that you see on the same slide in the presentation is the new governor who Naboa appointed for our home province, Verona Santiago. So the new governor of our home province, he's actually the father of one of the employees of our local subsidiary on the Warrensa project. So he's going to be very, very good for mining. And, and you're seeing the results come through. We had another mine permitted, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, uh, permitted just recently, earlier this month. You see investments coming through. You see Barrick just entered the country. You see Hancock, which is an Australian major, committed another $100 million to exploration. You see Zijin committing $100 million to us for exploration of our project. You see Mirador, $800 million of investment committed to the doubling capacity of that mine just down the highway from where we're located. You know, this is a country where good things are happening in the mining sector, and we're optimistic, and everyone should be optimistic about the future under Naboa. He's a, a kind of a, a centrist or a center-right politician, and center-right politicians have, have that kind of balance of pragmatism, but then the right policies to be able to really do good things in Latin America. So we're very optimistic about it. Great comments there. I mean, just with respect to Lundin Gold, a great team over there, great project. And of course, uh, Ron Hochstein, great guy. Outstanding yeah. individual, incredible execution. Can't say enough good things about Ron Hochstein, Lundin Gold, and the entire Lundin group. Good folks over there running that operation and we need more Rons, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> community front on that side of things, anything that you want to update on specific community front near the project and some of the efforts that you guys are doing at the community level? Yeah, I mean, you spend an hour talking about the efforts at the community level because we have such a wide-ranging CSR program. But I'll stick to the highlights. The important thing is that we've had uninterrupted, strongly proactive community support from our communities, okay, that are our actual partners in the project through the community agreements that we've had. So this is going from an MOU to an impact and benefits agreement in 2020, and then updating that impact and benefits agreement in 2022. And then we'll have another update coming through in, in, the, next, um, in the next few months. Uh, we'll have another update coming through, which covers off the next phase of the project. And so that's um, priority number one. That's the explicit consent for the project itself. And you can't have a stronger partner than the communities that, you know, where the project resides on their ancestral lands in Ecuador. Nobody can challenge um, their ownership and their legal rights to the project and the strength of the relationship that we have, the social license that we have with these communities, because it's in writing. Okay, and so that that's the first thing that you'll see. And then once we have that in place, then we've got agreements with the broader indigenous uh, kind of government structure in Ecuador. And so these don't relate to the permitting process itself. There's no bearing on it, but they're part of the broader CSR effort. And so you'll see an, you'll see announcements on, on, on that front follow thereafter. But we've got a whole series of programs that go beyond the agreements that I described to you. That's just the, the formalization of the relationship. The relationship is much de deeper and broader than anything that you could put into writing. Excellent. This is an area that's uh, it's sensitive. It's increasingly sensitive. As, as you know, you and I frequent Central and South America. We know the area and we see the increased sensitivities on some of these fronts. And you mentioned, of course, CSR. I can appreciate you still using CSR as your terminology. You know, we see NGOs and other parties outside influences outside the country start to influence people in the country in a harmful way. NGO management has become part of a overall program that a company has to deal with. We've seen this highlighted recently with Coverty Panama and some of the influences by outside parties. And that's just one more layer of red tape and issue that we have to deal with from a company standpoint as well to make sure that the interests and the actual work that's being done is, sorry for lack of better words, but it's not perverted by outside NGOs who actually don't do anything other than disrupt. Panama is at the opposite end of the spectrum of Ecuador in terms of its kind of country profile. Like if you think about Panama, it's it's the richest country in Latin America, actually ahead 
if, if you do a, a triple P adjustment ahead on a GDP per capita basis of Costa Rica, Chile, and so on, right at the top of the pile. And it's a highly formalized economy. It's, it's, it's oriented entirely towards services around uh, banking and insurance and shipping and uh, legal services and other things. And then whereas with Ecuador, you, you're at the opposite end. You've got a country that's the second poorest country in South America, ahead of only Bolivia. The economy is largely an informal economy. The formal part of the economy is entirely oriented towards exports. And so it's an export economy. And this is why it's a dollarized economy. It helps with that. And this is why it's got excellent infrastructure, because it's an export economy. They're, they're exporting raw materials, crude oil, number one, you know, shrimp, banana, mineral products now would come in at number four, but growing. And then lumber after that, unprocessed lumber after that. Um, so that's basically the profile of the economy. Now, if you think about the culture of the economy in Panama, because of the history of interaction with the United States, and I don't want to you know, put too, too fine a point on it, but within, within, the, within the recent memory of, of kind of the, uh, uh, the population, the young population of Panama, uh, you have um, you know, conflict with the United States. And so there's a cultural uh, kind of um, opposition to foreign influence, and especially you know, the extractive sectors are always going to be inherently sensitive. Um, and so foreign companies in the extractive sector, you know, in a country that's got a kind of a cultural, a deeply seated, you know, kind of cultural sensitivity around, you know, foreign powers and their perceptions of colonialism misplaced, you know, as they are. But um, but but that whole kind of political perspective, whereas in Ecuador, you just you don't have anything like that. As I say, they're more dissimilar than they are similar. We haven't seen any history of uh nationalizations or appropriations or anything like that in Ecuador. Ecuador is a country that has actually gone the opposite direction in terms of providing international guarantees for projects, you know, investment contracts like the one that we entered into, which actually guarantees uh, the security of title, guarantees and freezes in place the regulatory regime for the project, uh, guarantees and freezes in place the taxation regime for the project, all subject to international arbitration, which is critical for Ecuador to maintain its international standing and access to credit markets and so on. So very, very different backdrop when you're looking at kind of the, the risk profile to the mining sector in those two countries. Good points. You know, whether we, we look at places like Peru and, and some of these other jurisdictions, we, you know, we can see occasional challenges. Then we, of course, we see some of these challenges that pop up with administration changes, but in general, Ecuador's making some very sound decisions in the right direction, uh, whereas some of these other jurisdictions are slipping, for sure. It's sad to see that, to be honest, but we have to deal with it nonetheless. I appreciate your comments there. I think that does uh, put it back into a better context than what I had said initially, Daniel, so I appreciate that. I think so. I think just generally, like with with NGOs, you need to understand it, you know, the, the, these are groups that are not constrained by reality or facts. And so they have no qualms about outright whole cloth fabrication of anti-mining propaganda to try and attack mining companies. And, and, and they do so at the expense. The, the true victims are the very communities that they purport to represent the interest of. You know, they're, when, when you attack the mining sector, like if you think about our project in particular, you know, well, let me talk about Ecuador generally to not, you know, if, if you look at like where we've had mining development in the southeast part of the country, you look at like Zamora Chinchipe to the south of us, where Lundin Gold's Fruta del Norte project is, or the Mirador project is, you have essentially an undeveloped in terms of, you know, the, the formal economy, uh, government services and so on, an undeveloped province in the country um, that would rank, you know, the cantons, where those projects specifically are located would have ranked as the poorest cantons in the entire uh, country. And then within the span of a decade with mining development, they've gone to be even richer than the business cap, the cantons that, that would, um, you know, that would host the, uh, the, the political capital in Quito or the business capital in Guayaquil. So ab about, about as dramatic a, a swing to the better in terms of outcomes at a social level and an economic level as you could possibly have with mining development. You know, and the big beneficiaries are the very communities who've been impacted by these projects. 
And so those are the communities that, that stand to benefit from mining. Those are the communities that are vulnerable to the, to the lies that these you know, anti-mining NGOs are spreading. And so it's important for everyone to understand the difference between the reality and then what these anti-mining NGOs are, are willing to tell people. Absolutely. And good point there, just with respect to the ultimate victim. When it comes to issues surrounding anti-mining, uh, the consumer is the victim at the end of the day. So you have to be careful about your Absolutely. positions here and you have to do the deep dive, which most people won't do because they're too lazy, into what actually makes these things tick and what makes economics tick and how it affects your bottom line at the retail level. It's truly impactful. At least a lot of people don't notice that. So appreciate your comments there. One of the things we didn't talk about was the other projects at the company. I just want to give you an opportunity here for any updates on the company pipeline at this point that you want to bring up. Very briefly, um, the, 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 project, the project in Mexico, you, you've seen, so this is a joint venture. We're 60 and then Tech Metals now uh, is, is 40% of that. They've actually, you know, Tech, Tech has sold their coal business. So they're sitting on, with that transaction, they'll be sitting on something like, you know, an enormous cash pile. And so it'll be interesting to see. They're obviously very bullish on copper. I think we're all bullish on copper. Everyone in the mining sector is bullish on copper. And even beyond the mining sector, if you recall, we were talking about a sovereign wealth fund uh, from the Middle East. And certainly there have been others who are trying to get in on the copper space as well. So I think it's pretty much a consensus view. It'll be interesting to see how aggressive they want to get with that project. Uh, I think there is an opportunity there. For us to allocate capital to that, we need to see upward movement in the copper price. We have to be disciplined. We have to allocate capital uh, to the project we're in, which is a project which is a robust project, even at you know the current um, depressed long-term consensus pricing. So we need to see upward movement on copper before we get interested in inverting. But it'll be interesting to hear tech's perspective on that. Uh, the other projects, so we've got two exploration projects in Peru. Peru is a country that um, you know had, was in turmoil, political turmoil with Castillo. But uh, Castillo gave way to Bilarte, who's done an excellent job. That was in 2021. Who's done an excellent job of kind of getting things back on track. And so we've made a lot of progress in, in Peru recently. Uh, and the communities are asking for us to get active on those projects. We're very excited about those exploration projects. Those are projects that were part of David Lowell's legacy. You know, David Lowell, most famous American geologist of all time. Uh, most successful geologist in terms of copper exploration, certainly. These two projects that we have in Peru were his targets for future discoveries. And I think now things are aligning where, you know, we could go in uh, with the invitation of the communities, go in and get active on those projects. So we'll see. That'll be contingent on, uh, you know, getting the Zijin transaction closed in Q2 and something that you may see news from us on uh, in the second half of the year. And then beyond that, we've got our project Ricardo in Chile. Chile is a challenged jurisdiction. I'll be honest about it. It's a jurisdiction where, you know, things have gotten more difficult. It's a much more expensive place to do business, even expiration uh, and permitting timelines have gotten longer, which plays into that. It's a slower jurisdiction to get things done as well. So I'll leave it there on those. Always good to highlight some of the non-core assets that this company has that probably don't get any respect in the marketplace. And then great point on Chile with respect to some of the, for lack of better words, again, forgive me, clown show that is, is occurring there with some projects. Rio 2, for example, you saw the reversal of the EIA first being denied, and then they dink around for 18 months uh, looking at that appeal, and then they flop back and say, okay, we'll approve it. An undefined timeline, if you will, and the administrative rules, as you well know, Daniel, get made up as you go along with some of these. With respect to just coming back here, tying this together as we wrap up for the audience, you and I both have what we think would be the outcome here for Solaris, but Maybe look down the road for us a little bit here. You know, we obviously have a great market with respect to copper and how we see this going to the end of the decade here. But what do you see as the ultimate preferred exit for Solaris and that final outcome for the company, if you will? And maybe you could just speculate for us and, and when you see that outlook and you think that's maybe 10 years down the road or, or five years down the road. Give us a bit of flavor as how you see this exit for the company. Yeah, I've got to be a little bit careful here, particularly with a, you know, a strategic investor on the register now. But let me say it's it's kind of state the obvious. It's going to be dependent on price. Okay, everything that we do is dependent on price, uh, in the way that we approach these things. But you know, the job that we have to do 
is we've got to grow the asset, we've got to make the discoveries that are available to us, and we've got to de-risk. And what I laid out to you is a program to do exactly that and fully de-risk the asset across 2024 and 2025. And so if we do that against a market backdrop, which is going to turn for the better, which you know we talked about the timing for that, the market is going to get tighter. We are going to have higher copper prices. It's a question of where it really starts to turn. And I think that's in the in the back half of the year, but, but there's some people who'd be more conservative around their economic assumptions. Maybe it's 2025. But if we do our job and the market does what we expect it to do across that time frame, and you get an alignment between those two things, then I think we should be able to get the um, the kind of the, the pricing back into the market, which will set us up for a variety of options towards the end of that time frame. So we're talking now in 2025. And, um, and we just need significantly better pricing to open up those options. Right now we're trading at 0.2 times NAV. We want to add value to that net asset value, but just take the 0.2 times NAV. The precedent transactions we talked about, and this is being, being driven by Chinese companies. People can talk about Western companies and whatever, but, but that's not where the action is. The action's with Chinese companies. Precedent transactions for development stage assets are at 0.8 times net asset value. You know, So for us to do a reasonable job, you can see even with a premium that we've got to get this stock to at least double, at the very minimum double, and it's more like a triple across the next two years before we unlock all the potential uh, in terms of the options that would be available to us. But your basic options are you transact on the asset in whole or you find a joint venture partner to come in and take the asset into production and then you're left with a very, very healthy equity stake and a much more valuable asset down the line. And you can see the way with Ivanhoe Mines, you know, Zijin came in and bought, call it 50% of the asset or just about 50% of the asset for $412 million US. Ivanhoe Mines now on, they own 40% of the asset or just shy of 40% of the asset is a $13 billion US market cap, okay, on 40% of the asset. And so you can see how it played out for them. You know, that's a unique story. That's the best example of value creation in the copper sector that you could possibly look at. And you were early and your investors, your listeners were early on that call because of the work that you did on that. Um, but it gives you an idea of what's possible when you've got, you, you, you've got that combination of a tier one asset, you've got the funding and the strategic support of a company with Zijin's profile, and then you've got a jurisdiction where you can get things done. And so I think that's the best way that I could frame the outlook for you and the way that we think about it. I appreciate that. And yeah, you were cherry picking just a little bit there with Ivanhoe, but when you look at, you know, I go back and I look at the Solaris story and we looked at this very early on as an Equinox investor, just the work you guys did pre launch of this company was tremendous. And I, I haven't quite seen anything like it since, to be honest, we saw this ability for you guys to, uh, talk about the asset, do the work on the community level and prepare for that launch of this company. And that launch was, uh, man, it was impeccable in my opinion. Here you are today delineating this at basically a, a portion of that valuation uh, out of the gate. And there's a lot yet to come here. And obviously the market hasn't fully respected it, but I do think that that's starting to turn here and, and confirmation obviously just came with some of these transactions that you mentioned. I'd like to uh, wrap it up and leave it here for now uh, with any final comments. And then also just for you to answer this question for potential investors who are listening in, the company has a market capitalization of about 600 million Canadian dollars today. Why should Solaris resources be considered within the institutional family office and retail investors portfolio at this stage? Well, I think, I think it basically what you're basically describing is, is a bear market opportunity and, that, and that's where we are in copper, certainly some of the copper equities, but mining equities generally. And, and I think what's unique about copper and certainly with Solaris is just the strength of the outlook and the upside opportunity. And so we talked about the outlook for copper. Uh, for Solaris, you know, we're trading at 0.2 times now. Precedent transactions are at 0.8 times now. And so you've got to look at the timeline. We've got a two-year program to be able to set ourselves up for all those options um, opening up for us. And across that time frame. We're not just going to be standing still. We're going to be looking to grow the asset in terms of the resource growth at the same time as we're going to be trying to make additional discoveries on the claims that we have and then in the district opportunity and indeed in the rest of the portfolio. 
And so we're going to be looking to add value at the same time as we're delivering that de-risking. We're fully funded. The single biggest risk facing any junior mining company or mining companies in general, if they've got growth profiles, is on financing. And in the span of, of the last couple of months, we've put in place $180 million US of financing. That just speaks to the quality of the opportunity that's available. The fact that we were able to deliver that financing and set ourselves up to deliver on the program that I described to you is a direct result of the quality of the opportunity. So I think it's a tremendous time. If you look at um, the insider filings on Solaris, you can see that I'm not just saying that, we're actually you know, voting with our, with our dollars uh, because we've got insider buying from the executive chairman, from the president CEO, uh, on down through the executive ranks, our new COO, um, and on down. And so we're putting our money where our mouth is. I think writing checks is uh, a pretty good way to indicate the efforts here. So I appreciate the comments there. Daniel, just to finish up your best way for folks to reach out to the company. You know, we're, we're easy to get a hold of. We're willing to talk to, um, you know, make ourselves available for retail investors, family offices on, on up. So we're an open book and happy to have a conversation on any topic. So reach out to us through our website to find the contact information for our investor relations person, uh, or you can reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. It's very easy to do. Always good to catch up, Daniel. Keep up the work here with Solaris, and I look forward to chatting again soon uh, after things get underway here this year. And thanks again for the time. We appreciate it. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me back. Much appreciated.